Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. But it is our common lot to die, and the gods themselves cannot rescue even one they love, when death, that stretches all men out, lays his dread hand upon him. Athena, The Odyssey, Book 3 Like waking up from a really good night on the town with a horrendous hangover, Axel Oxenstierna had to take some serious painkillers, assess the situation, and plan Sweden's next move in the labyrinth of the Holy Roman Empire. He was Sweden's Chancellor and head of the Regency government set up to rule in place of the late Gustavus Adolphus till his daughter Christina came of age. Gustavus had gone wild in the 18 months since entering the empire. But now the Swedish party was over, and Ax Ox had to try to resume where his master had left off, starting with his neighbours. Russia under Tsar Michael had strengthened its ties with Sweden to the detriment of Poland, and had ensured that a series of chain reactions meant both Swedish involvement in the Holy Roman Empire and a Russian preparation for war against its Polish foe. Sweden had signed the Peace of Altmark in 1629 which ended the Swedish-Polish war, but Gustavus still feared that Poland would attack him in the rear if he did not orchestrate some kind of insurance policy, and that was where Russia came in. Tsar Michael had more than a score to settle with his Polish enemy. In the so-called Time of Troubles, Russian lands had been chipped away by both Poland and Sweden, but only Poland still claimed the Russian crown, and only Poland still harboured apparent ambitions for Russian territory. The fruits of the diplomacy between Russia and Sweden were a virtual guarantee of Russian intervention in the years following Gustavus's invasion of the HRE in summer 1630. 
Delays in Russian preparedness convinced Gustavus that it would be better to move west rather than east after his victory at Breitenfeld in September 1631, because the time had apparently not yet come for a joint Russo-Swedish squeezing of Poland that was the main goal of their alliance. It also explains why Gustavus acted with a ferocious speed against the empire following his Breitenfeld victory. He likely believed that time was of the essence, and wanted to be ready to move against Poland with Russia by his side when the Austrian Habsburgs were defeated. A stickler for the details, Gustavus had made it clear to Tsar Michael that he could not invade Poland from Sweden's Baltic possessions in Livonia, because that would violate the terms of the Swedish-Polish peace in 1629. However, this treaty had not accounted for Swedish attacks against Poland from any German possessions it may have, such as in Silesia, mainly because it was above the imagination of the Polish negotiators in 1629 to suppose that Sweden could have extended its powers to that region of the HRE in the future. Thanks to his German conquests though, Gustavus was in a position to attack Poland from Silesia, at least geographically. His Swedish ambassador to Russia, Johann Muller, communicated the following message to the Tsar personally. It is not possible to send the troops from Livonia because it was laid down in the truce that the King of Sweden would not send troops through Livonia or from Sweden or Finland. But nothing was said about not sending them from Germany because Poland did not suppose that the King would think of making war on German territory. But the Polish King had aided the enemies of the Swedish King and so His Majesty the Tsar will understand that His Royal Majesty has not cause to be ashamed of planning to attack Poland. Gustavus did authorise a force of 15,000 to sit in Silesia and wait instruction in mid-1631, but when nothing came of Russian promises, and news then came of Russia's postponing of the start date of hostilities, Gustavus moved back west until both were ready. Sigismund would have known that the acidic relationship his state endured with Russia was soon to escalate into violence, and he wanted to be ready himself for when the expected war broke out. In his attempts to create a role reversal of what had happened in previous years, Sigismund sent Polish Cossacks to aid Wallenstein against Gustavus. Though Sigismund claimed that these Cossacks had acted on their own accord, Gustavus would surely have lamented with a level of rage at the interconnected nature of all things Habsburg. Since he married Ferdinand's sister Anna, Ferdi and Sigismund were related by law, and thus all members of the Habsburg family. What this meant for Gustavus was that any time he made headway against one, he was faced with the other. In his previous Polish campaigns, Wallenstein had sent imperial units to delay and frustrate Gustavus's war effort against the Poles, in the hope that Sweden could be prevented from entering the war against the Holy Roman Empire in the late 1620s. That had been a major casus belli for Gustavus when he considered his justification for moving against the Holy Roman Empire in summer 1630. Now, just as he was facing down Ferdinand, it seemed Sigismund was returning Wallenstein's favour and planting his own units in Gustavus's way. Following this Swedish success at Breitenfeld, Johann Muller welcomed a letter delivered with exceptional speed by a Swedish rep on October 27, 1631. By divine grace and his royal good fortune, God gave him victory over the Kaiser's men. He beat the great commander named Tilly on September of this year, 1631, at the city of Leipzig, which belongs to the Elector of Saxony, and harried the enemy for seven miles. And in this battle 20,000 were killed, and the great commander Tilly himself received a wound from which he died. 
Two days before his defeat, this Tilly occupied the city of Leipzig, and 6,000 of the Kaiser's men are now therein, but Gustavus Adolphus expects that they will yield themselves to the victor's mercy. It was the Battle of Breitenfeld that apparently woke Tsar Michael up to the very real change underway in the HRE, courtesy of Gustavus. It is very easy to forget that very few expected a Swedish victory against Tilly's unbeaten force. But consider even further just how few could have possibly envisioned Gustavus's virtual takeover of imperial lands in the months thereafter. It was a sudden but certainly pleasant surprise to the Tsar that his ally had actually achieved what he had set out to achieve against the Habsburgs when so many others had failed. Breitenfeld increased Russian determination to act against Poland, and Gustavus made a further request for the Tsar that in Moscow, to honour the Swedish victory, cannons should be fired in a kind of salute, but also as a reminder to the Polish king. As Boris Porchnev, in his book Moscovy and the Thirty Years' War, 1630-1635, notes. Quote, it is interesting that Johann Muller argued for this to be done not only on the grounds that all Gustavus Adolphus's other friends and enemies of the Papists had done this, but also from a purely political consideration relating to the Polish problem. Such a salute, he said, was needed, so that the enemy, the Polish king, hearing it, may be greatly frightened, and the friendship between our states may be plain. In other words, as Gustavus set off westward, he wanted Moscow to demonstrate, by yet another public action, its alliance with him, and, along with that, the war danger threatening Poland, since there were, as yet, no actual military operations. End quote. As it turned out, Tsar Michael was more than willing to participate in this act of psychological warfare. Russia celebrated Breitenfeld as a victory of its own foreign policy, and led celebrations in its capital, and Johann Muller notified Gustavus of their level of extravagance, which no one in this country remembers having happened before. 60,000 people lined the streets of Moscow, and the celebrations ended when the Tsar led his populace out into a large field and led the 100-gun salute, amid ringing church bells and the smoke of firing muskets that accompanied it. Porchnev emphasises the importance of Breitenfeld. Quote, By such rejoicing, of course, the Muscovite government wished to mark not another's victory, but its own. The Tsar and his circle saw the Swedish king's successes against the German emperor as a direct success for Russian policy, as the fulfilment of a plan which had thoroughly matured in Moscow. Gustavus Adolphus's victory must have seemed the first, but perhaps decisive step, on the road to recovering the West Russian, Ukrainian and Belarusian lands from Poland. It seemed that the key to accomplishing this was already in their hands. There was indeed something to rejoice about. End quote. An interesting item that Porchnev makes clear is the opposition that Axel Oxenstierna harboured towards an alliance with Russia. While Gustavus was king, this manifested itself in Axel's delaying critical messages and his two-faced strategy when dealing with his king, telling him that Poland had shown no signs of readying itself for war against Russia, and that Gustavus had little chance of gaining the Polish crown upon Sigismund's death because his son Vladislav was established as his father's secure successor. Alternatively, Axe Ox also had a lot in his plate, even before Gustavus's untimely demise. For as Sweden's first minister, it fell to him to coordinate the astounding sums of money required to pay for the troops Gustavus required. 
The economic burden on Sweden alone was grinding his gears, and now Axox also had to divert resources so that a German army with Russian money could be raised in Silesia for the aforementioned attack there in support of Russia. Axox was no fool. He knew of the good relations between the Swedish king and the Russian Tsar, and he understood the value of an alliance with Russia so as to squeeze Poland. But he, like Sweden's council, was opposed to anything that would draw Sweden to make large-scale contributions to Russia. They wanted Russian help, but they wanted to pay as little as possible in order to get it. Axox also maintained that the reasoning behind the military alliance with Russia was flawed because, as Porchnev notes, quote, The Chancellor thought that there were two factors which might hold the Poles from breaking the truce. On the one hand, they would not take such a step while Gustavus Adolphus was winning victories in Germany. Only if he were to suffer some reverses might they become a danger to Sweden. As proof, Oxenstierna told the king that a few days before the Battle of Breitenfeld, a false report of the Swedish defeat reached Warsaw, and Sigismund III at once ordered his commanders to begin preparations for war. The news of the Swedes' victory brought chagrin, for it ruined the Poles' hope of easily recovering Prussia and Livonia, and a section of Poland's magnates at once began calling for a permanent peace to be established with Sweden, no matter the price to be paid. On the other hand, in Oxenstierna's view the Poles would not break the truce with Sweden so long as Russia was threatening them with war, and so long as such a war lasted, for they certainly would not want Sweden drawn into it. End quote. It was not a necessarily anti-Russian policy that Oxox followed, but one which sought to gain as much for Sweden as possible while not spending or sacrificing very much. War with Poland would tie Sweden down until the conflict ended, and if Sweden refused to go to war in support of Russia, then surely Russia would be miffed. It was not worth it, he reasoned, when the pieces were in place already. Russia already was plotting against Poland militarily, all Sweden had to do was wait and then watch. When Gustavus asked Axox what he thought of the proposals for a Russian alliance, he was likely confronted with this form of an answer, and though Axox would never act directly against his king, he could see to it that certain persons and certain info took longer than usual to reach their objective. The best example is given by Porchnev's account of one Anton Monnier, another critical Swedish diplomat who had the complete confidence of both the Tsar and the Swedish king. Quote, Monnier signed his letters to the Tsar on the 28th of September, but the Swedish courier with these letters, and with Gustavus Adolphus' similar instructions to Mahler, did not arrive in Russia until more than two months later. Clearly, dispatch of the letters had been deliberately delayed. To prevent Monnier from interfering with this delay, he was honourably discharged from Stockholm by being appointed, on October 24th, Governor of Gripsholm. Podcast footnote. Gripsholm was the location of the Swedish royal family's castle until 1707. It was a pretty sweet gig then for Monnier, though he can't have been happy to have been suddenly removed from his post. The fact that Axel gave him such a cushy position reflects his tactics. He didn't want to make waves, just quietly delay everything, in the hopes that the proposals would not amount to anything. End podcast footnote. Removing Anton Monnier, who enjoyed the personal trust of Gustavus and also the Tsar, who had asked that Gustavus empower Monnier to continue their negotiations, was undoubtedly in line with the Chancellor's policy. End quote. 
The Russian roads are awfully treacherous and badly maintained these days, eh? It seems strange to us that Axox would seek to pursue his own policy behind Gustavus' back, but it is important to note Axel's stance here, since after Gustavus' death, it is Axel Oxenstierna who will be calling Sweden's shots. Axox was busy in Germany too, and a main reason for his opposition to Russian entanglements is mostly down to his heavy involvement in the HRE, and his seeing that theatre as the main event in terms of Swedish operations. With a view to enhancing Sweden's position in Germany, Axel sought to reinforce the German prince's loyalty to him by ensuring the creation of the Heilbronn League in early 1633. Geoffrey Parker, in his book The Thirty Years' War, examines this process. Quote, As early as October 1632, Gustavus had moved his Chancellor to convene a meeting of the Franconian, Swabian and Rhinish circles at Ulm to discuss the formation of a defensive league, in alliance with Sweden. Podcast footnote. Essentially, these circles I keep talking about just refer to a number of cities or microstates that could be lumped together in a cooperative group. They were usually geographically associated. If you remember the Lower and Upper Saxon circles cooperated with Denmark in 1624, and it was the same kind of idea here. In this case, these areas had mostly pledged their loyalty to Gustavus Adolphus. End podcast footnote. The meeting actually took place the following January. Those present debated ways of creating this association, raising an army and paying for it. In March, after the circles had discussed the various matters separately, the assembly reconvened at Heilbronn, a safer place than Ulm, and on the 23rd of April 1633 signed the league that Sweden desired. They agreed to fight and go on fighting until three goals had been achieved. First, until such time as the liberties of Germany and a respect for the principles and constitution of the Holy Roman Empire are once again firmly established. Second, until... The restoration of the Protestant estates is secured, and a certain and just peace in spirituals and temporals is obtained and concluded. And third, until the crown of Sweden has been assured of an appropriate satisfaction. Moreover, the achievement of these aims were placed firmly in the hands of Axel Oxenstierna, in respect, so his allies handsomely affirmed, of his God-given exceptional qualities. He became sole director of the Heilbronn League. End quote. The emergence of the Heilbronn League was a critical development in the post-Gustavus years, because it tied Germany's northern Protestant princes yet again to Sweden, and an anti-Habsburg policy. It also ensured that Axox could point still to the cause of these German princes as a source of legitimacy for Sweden's cause, though in reality, Sweden had very little real concept of what to do with the HRE's insurmountable religious, political, and social problems. George William of Brandenburg, having thrown his lot in with Gustavus in the years before, was suffering from a case of severe regret by the time Gustavus was killed on the battlefield of Lutzen. 
His chief concern lay in the Swedish desire to annex Pomerania, a move which was viewed as seriously detrimental to his electorate's security. It went above strategic concerns, though. George William remembered that the dynasty of Pomerania had, as early as 1529, committed to Brandenburg the right to incorporate its lands once its ruling family died out. This meant that, by 1630, George William was surely drooling at the thought of finally inheriting the lucrative Pomeranian lands, since Pomerania's ruler at the time, Bogoslav XIV, was the last of his line. However, also in 1613, Bogoslav had made a contradictory treaty with Gustavus, promising him his lands so long as the war lasted. Gustavus certainly needed Pomerania, so long as he warred against the HRE, and it is likely that George William understood this. What really seems to have changed this understanding was the Battle of Lutzen in late 1632. After this battle and Gustavus's death, Swedish units were instructed to retreat to Pomerania and leave their German mercs in the remainder of the empire. For George William, the reinforced presence of Swedes in Pomerania reawakened fears that Sweden would hold onto the territory longer than expected. He appealed to Oxenstierna and explained his position as the rightful heir of Pomerania. But Axel made it clear that Sweden could not and would not abandon an area of such strategic importance to Brandenburg so long as the war continued. George William saw the writing on the wall. At the beginning of 1633, the war showed no signs of ending, meaning the Swedes would have no reason to leave, while Bogoslav was clearly nearing the end of his life. What would happen once Bogoslav died and the Swedes still inhabited the region? George William smelt the possibility for a Swedish annexation, and so his tone vis-à-vis the Swedes began to change. Additionally, he started to believe that only by either a Swedish defeat or joint Holy Roman Empire peace agreement could Sweden be removed from his doorstep. He looked to his fellow Protestant elector, John George, for his support in securing this about-face in diplomacy. Geoffrey Parker outlines what happened next. Quote, In January 1633, he sent envoys to Dresden to persuade John George to join him in a peace initiative. But the Saxon capital was already seething with diplomats and foreign dignitaries, all trying to win the elector's support. Oxenstierna arrived first, and spent Christmas 1632 persuading his host to participate in a new invasion of the Habsburg heartland. Shortly afterwards, Landgrave George of Hesse-Darmstadt came to invite John George to join him in formal discussions with an imperial delegation on the terms of a possible peace settlement. In the event, the Habsburg terms proved too harsh, and John George, like Brandenburg, threw in his lot with Sweden for another campaign but he exacted a high price for his participation. Above all, he ensured that the main Protestant offensive would be launched in the east, into Silesia, under commanders chosen by himself. This explains how the Saxons would find themselves in Silesia once Wallenstein began his negotiations with them in mid-1633. It is also interesting because it looks a little bit like the previous plans of Gustavus coming to fruition, with regards to his attack against Poland. If you remember from earlier, Gustavus had organised Sweden to be ready for an attack against Poland from Silesia, since that would not violate the terms of the treaty he had signed with Poland in 1629, and since striking from there would squeeze Poland more effectively, as he could grab its most valuable territory quickly. The positioning of a Swedish force in Silesia did not go unnoticed by Vladislav, the King of Poland, 
but Vladislav himself was probably too concerned with the Russian besieging of Smolensk and the Turkish movements in the south to really expect to do anything about it. Even after his death, it appeared as though the ghost of Gustavus haunted Poland in the plans he had laid down in the months before. We have seen in the previous episodes how one state's actions had a reaction for another, how the chessboard of Europe necessitated having an ally cause havoc for your enemy so that you did not have to face a war on two fronts. Porshnev echoes this strategy that everyone at least aimed to follow within the concert of Europe, and explains that, while Ferdinand II begged for his Polish ally to intervene during the dark Swedish months and then after Nordlingen, Gustavus's previous insurance policy prevented such Polish moves. Quote, Few contemporaries, of course, were able to grasp mentally this entire complex system of states. But European opinion did nevertheless link closely the course of events in Germany with the course of the Russo-Polish War. Even persons without much experience of politics could not but ask themselves why, when the emperor was engaged in a duel to the death with the Swedish king, a struggle that was shaking all of Germany, his long-time Polish ally failed to come to the aid of the exhausted emperor, and received the reply that the Polish king was unable again to come to his aid because he was himself threatened with war, and later it was actually made war upon by the Muscovite Tsar. End quote. The Russian decision to attack Poland in October 1632 coincided with Swedish moves against Wallenstein, and meant that the pro-Habsburg and anti-Habsburg parties had to fight alone. But Moscow did not know in October 1632 that Gustavus would be dead within a month. It did not know that Sweden would soon be retreating back to Pomerania, and it did not know that its campaigns would be fought against Poland alone. What Tsar Michael did know was that Poland was in a quandary as its Senate scrambled to elect a new king after Sigismund III's death, and that attacking them then would perhaps drive Poland over the edge. The Russian army that advanced towards Poland under Mikhail Borisovich Shine was quite unlike the Russian armies of before. It was cautious and well provisioned, but above all it was trained in Western tactics, provided with Swedish cannons and prepared to engage in a protracted siege of Poland's greatest Russian acquisition, Smolensk. Since the 1618 Treaty of Dolino, Poland had held the lands once belonging to Russia in this area and it was the sole desire of Tsar Michael and his father, known as the Patriarch and once a Polish prisoner, to see these lands returned. Regrettably for Moscow, the hasty decision to attack Poland that had been borne out of the info of Sigismund's death meant that neither Swede nor Turk was in place to distract the Poles, and this resulted in a one-on-one battle between the two Eastern European foes. Initially, it went well for Russia, the large army stormed through the former Russian territories and by October 28th was besieging Smolensk. The Polish parliament began preparations to orchestrate a relief army two days later, as it was clear that the Smolensk garrison of 2,000 men could not hold out indefinitely against Shine's 23,000 strong force. Still, the word was that such a force would not be ready until spring the next year, though the small garrison would have to hold its own until then. Fortunately for this garrison, work had been made on Smolensk's fortifications by Italian specialists, who constructed a series of ring forts that posed an intimidating challenge to attackers. By July 1633, though, the defence of Smolensk was nearing collapse. Walls had been breached by heavier artillery brought up in January, and the Russian besiegers were threatening another attack 
against the demoralized defenders. Lithuanian troops unmasked against them, disrupting Russian attempts to completely cut off Smolensk though, and in July even managed to get a small force and an important message through the siege to the Smolensk garrison, that the King of Poland was on his way with a relief army 25,000 strong. This inspirational news was critical in motivating the garrison to hold on, and when news reached Shine that Vladislav was on his way, the results were immediate. Cossack forces were also expected and materialised to harass Russian supply lines, so that by the time Vladislav and his troops appeared at the end of August 1633, Shine could not maintain the siege. He retreated to his camp, but was surrounded there by the superior numbers of Polish-Lithuanian troops. Shine awaited reinforcements, but none came, and by the end of 1633 his situation was untenable. He would have to surrender to the Poles. By February 24, 1634, his force had surrendered, now reduced to a mere 10,000 men, and by April 30th negotiations had begun to end the war itself. The terms of the peace were quite favourable to Moscow, considering how dramatically its hopes had been shattered by the Poles. The pre-war status was confirmed, and Vladislav renounced his claims on the Russian crown, which his father Sigismund had previously placed upon him. This was, in many ways, a diplomatic boon for Russia, since it represented the end of the Russian troubles, as Tsar Michael could now hold his title without any challenges. But Russia had received a seriously bloody nose from the short war. Its grand design with Sweden had gone up in smoke, and the Patriarch had died at the end of 1633, leaving Tsar Michael without his key advisor, and the Russian court without its key anti-Polish voice. The Russian failure scrambled the plans for Axel Oxenstierna too, who had hoped to rely on Polish inaction owing to its Russian war for the foreseeable future. The fact that Poland had settled its debts, so to speak, with its neighbours by the end of 1634 played havoc with Axel's strategically focused mind. The truce with Poland was due to expire in mid-1635. Sweden could not afford the prospect of a renewed war in that theatre so long as it was so engrossed in the HRE. This is a problem we'll come back to later and in the next episode, but suffice it to say, Gustavus would surely have been rolling in his grave had he known the extent to which all his planning had been for naught. The Russian gamble had failed, and that chapter of the Thirty Years' War was now over. A key reason why Vladislav did not force the Russian issue was the threat posed by the Ottomans to the south of his country. Having been relatively quiet up to this point, a large Ottoman army had been massing on the Polish border, and Vladislav had to move to meet the threat. The threat posed by the Ottomans was complicated by the actions of Russia and the Crimean Tartars, the latter of which were a vassal of the Ottoman Empire. Crimean raids against Russia meant that Russo-Turkish cooperation was strained, and that joint operations against Poland were frustrated. It also meant that, far from being surrounded, Vladislav could deal with his distracted enemies one at a time. An Ottoman peace followed the Russian one in September 1634, once the Ottomans elected to refocus their attention on Persia yet again. Axel Oxenstierna would likely have had little love for the new Polish king, but he would certainly have had to admit that by the time of the Polish-Ottoman peace, circumstances were changing, and not in Sweden's favour. 
As Geoffrey Parker notes, the difficulties faced by Axox were only increased by Wallenstein's diplomatic interference, particularly in Silesia, where a considerable Swedish Saxon force resided. Quote, in June 1633, Wallenstein managed to split the Saxon and Swedish units in Silesia when he arranged a ceasefire of one month to allow peace negotiations with Arnhem, once his subordinate, and now the Saxon commander. The talks proved inconclusive. Hostilities resumed in July. But in August, Arnhem agreed to a second truce to allow further negotiations. And when, on the 27th of September, fighting resumed, Wallenstein suddenly launched a massive attack on Thurn's Swedish force at Steinau, cut them off, and forced 8,000 men to surrender within a week. Thurn himself was captured, and agreed to surrender all the towns in Silesia held by his fellow exiles in return for his freedom. These were devastating blows, and Wallenstein followed up his success by making renewed offers of a peaceful settlement to both Saxony and Brandenburg. Oxenstierna found it necessary to make a renewed visit to George William in early 1634 in order to secure their rejection, but on the 25th of February, the Chancellor was unexpectedly saved from further difficulties by the assassination of his principal adversary. End quote. For Axe Ox, it was clear that Wallenstein was just as wily a figure with the pen as he was with the sword and he surely worried that unless the tide turned securely back in Sweden's favour soon, one of these peace proposals of Wallenstein's would soon be heeded by one or both of the Protestant electors. And yet, despite Axel's concerns, Wallenstein's allies had made it clear to him that the Habsburg cause was on the ropes, and that the situation was already untenable owing to the years of ruinous war. Joff Mortimer, in his book Wallenstein, the Enigma of the Thirty Years' War, echoes this view. Quote, in January 1633, a small group of imperial councillors prepared a memorandum for the emperor on the progress of the war. Circumspectly phrased, and with all the obligatory references to the righteousness of the cause and the emperor's duty to the church, their assessment was nonetheless gloomy. After years of fighting, bloodshed and devastation of the emperor's lands, the position of the Catholic Church was less rather than more secure. Indeed, it was worse than it had been at any time during the Reformation. There were far more Protestants than Catholics in the Empire, a regrettable fact which assisted the Emperor's enemies, as the success of the Swedish campaigns had shown. Prior to Gustavus's intervention, the Catholics side had won many battles, but had not been able to achieve an enduring victory. But the loss of one battle, Breitenfeld, had cost them most of Germany. End quote. Not even Ferdinand II's closest advisers could tell their emperor that the cause was guaranteed success. The death of Gustavus Adolphus at Lutzen had been the only saving grace of that battle, indeed of Wallenstein's previous campaigning season. Wallenstein knew that he had in fact lost the battle, that his units had cracked under superior Swedish and mercenary training. This force still existed within Germany, and the Habsburgs still apparently lacked the means to defeat it decisively. This wasn't all. The enemy could call on far greater resources than Ferdinand. The Austrian Habsburg's greatest ally was a Spain at war with the Dutch, or a Poland threatened by Russia and Turkey. Podcast footnote. Remember, this was the Habsburg's view of the world in early 1633, before Russia and Turkey had bowed out, and Poland's attention had been freed back up again. End podcast footnote. The anti-Habsburg cause could look to Sweden, the German princes, and above all, France. 
the Habsburgs were distracted by events in Italy, in Alsace-Lorraine, and in the Spanish Netherlands. France was paying the bills of Sweden's war, and was causing Spain to increasingly look over its shoulder whenever it did anything. Wallenstein and a few others were advocating negotiations with the Swedes while they were reeling from the loss of Gustavus. Yet, the imperial cause was desperate. Worsened by the realisation that, though Ferdinand and his allies were near their end, France was waiting threateningly in the wings as a fresh tag-team partner for the Swedes to call upon. Wallenstein himself recognised this, and made it his mission to ensure that France was not provoked, and that the same kind of policies pursued by the Habsburgs near the end of the 1620s, in Mantua for example, would not reoccur. Wallenstein had one chance. If his army were to be destroyed by a resurgent Sweden, he knew he could not raise another one. Wallenstein's enemies were not so constrained. Though their head had been lopped off, Sweden was still a formidable force, fielding over 100,000 men in Germany. Axel Oxenstierna, a world-renowned statesman, had taken the reins of Sweden's regency government, and Sweden could still call on practical allies and generals on the ground in Germany, which was more than Wallenstein could claim to do. Thus, Wallenstein had to approach 1633 diplomatically, and seek to dismantle piece by piece what Axox had created, starting with the Heilbronn League. To do this, paradoxically, he would go after the League's two uninvolved parties, Saxony and Brandenburg. The diplomacy of 1633 contains far more events of consequence than the actual military campaigns. Silesia was invaded, that's true and Bohemia's famous exile Thurn surrendered himself to Wallenstein, while the former led a small Swedish army, and across Europe at Smolensk, Poland was readying itself to defend its far-flung borders. But this was really the extent of the fighting. Just in case you think I'm simplifying the events, Joff Mortimer has been roped in. Quote, In military terms, 1633 was a year in which neither side achieved much of significance, as although the war did not by any means come to a standstill, it was effectively relegated to second place by a convoluted series of attempts to find a new basis for peace. Nevertheless, Swedish progress in both political and military matters early in the year confirmed the fears so recently set out by the peace party in Vienna. End quote. Just like Wallenstein, though, Axox also saw troubles ahead. Though perhaps not as inherent as Wallenstein's, these woes nonetheless account for much of the stillness in the Swedish camp. The Heilbronn League had been far more forthcoming with promises than actual money, and the mounting Swedish debts had, not for the first or last time, resulted first in a military stasis, and then a mutiny in spring 1633. It was August by the time the necessary land grabs and fines had been imposed to pay for their soldiers, and French paymasters were yet again called upon to settle Sweden's creditors and ease their concerns. These were serious problems affecting the entirety of the Swedish army, and combined with Saxon hesitation and Brandenburg distrust, they created a lack of action by the anti-Habsburg camp, which was just as well for Wallenstein, considering his own misgivings about the risks involved in beginning a pitched battle and potentially sacrificing his limited forces and finite resources. It was at this point that the rumours regarding Wallenstein, primarily that he was seeking to grab the Bohemian crown and betray Ferdinand II, began to circulate with a vengeance. What I find interesting about them is that virtually every source I come up Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. 
Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Across notes Wallenstein's assassination in February 1634 and reasons his inevitability by explaining that he was turning against the emperor, don't you know? So this gave Ferdinand no choice. Quite aside from the fact that no evidence actually exists to support this, all we have to do is examine it practically and we can discount it ourselves. Jeff Mortimer really opened my eyes, not just regarding how unkind history has been to Wallenstein, but also how to tell a truth from a porky in general history. The rumours were circulated because of Wallenstein's contact with numerous individuals, some of whom, like Arnim the Saxon commander and negotiator, spent the majority of 1633 listening to what Wallenstein had to say and then manipulating it to serve his own agenda. We must remember the range of agendas at stake here. Wallenstein wanted to remove Saxony and Brandenburg from Sweden and return them to Ferdinand's camp, thereafter sending all available power against the Swedes. He hoped to do this by appealing to the two electors' sense of constitutional duty. Arnhem, representing Saxony, wanted to create a third wheel in the Holy Roman Empire, encompassing Brandenburg, Saxony and whatever was under Wallenstein's command with essentially the same goals as Wallenstein, to remove all of the Empire's enemies, but also with additional goals of religious tolerance and amnesties for those caught in the middle. Arnhem hoped to gain the cooperation of Wallenstein by bribing him with the promise of the Bohemian crown. This situation is made more complicated by the fact that Arnhem was reporting back actively to his Swedish allies, as per the terms of their alliance so he couldn't very well reveal that his goal was the removal of Sweden and the unifying of Wallenstein and Saxony. Additionally, Sweden had ideas, or at least concerns, which would have conflicted with Wallenstein's theoretical seizure of the Bohemian crown that Arnhem believed was the sole carrot he had at his disposal. So, Arnhem instead emphasised, when talking to the Swedes, how darn mad Wallenstein was at Ferdinand for dismissing him all those years before in 1630 and that, because of revenge, he would team up with the Swedes and invade the Habsburg hereditary lands, take Vienna, evict the Jesuits, send Ferdinand to Spain, etc. 
Arnhem's stirring of the pot brought him face to face with Sweden's Axel Oxenstierna, who wanted to know what the actual word was before he sent a contingent of Swedes to aid Wallenstein. Such was the extent of the rumours that Arnhem, among others, had fanned. Jeff Mortimer notes that Oxenstierna was, quote, extremely dubious, commenting that it would be a great opportunity, were it genuine, but it seems much too suspicious. He had, he said, probed further, in order to find out the real motive, but he, Arnhem, was decidedly reticent, as is his manner and temperament. Although when pressed, he conceded that he himself had some doubts as to Wallenstein's designs. Nevertheless, Oxenstierna had told him to assure Wallenstein that, if he proceeds with his intentions, we will not abandon him, commenting that, come what may, this business can do us no harm. End quote. Of course, they could do Wallenstein serious harm. He could everything to lose and nothing to gain, and it doesn't take a genius to figure out how incredibly skewed this portrayal of Wallenstein's motives were. Even if I hadn't just told you how and why they had been concocted by Arnhem so as to draw in the Swedes and Axox, the idea that Wallenstein would go against the Emperor he had served loyally since his career began was bogus. As was the claim that he was angry at the Emperor. If he was, he certainly didn't have a habit of showing it when he was putting his life on the line in his name at Lutzen. As was the idea that Arnhem could bribe Wallenstein with the Bohemian crown, a position which, even had he wanted it, would have been dependent on French and Swedish money and goodwill to maintain. Wallenstein had made a habit of not making unrealistic goals for himself, and seizing the Bohemian crown when Sweden still lurked menacingly and the French still lingered in the background would have been the equivalent of suicide to him. The practical, sensible reasoning against acting upon Saxon offers by Arnhem were easily ignored by a Vienna out for a level of reprimanding of their own. Wallenstein hadn't exactly made friends in court when he elected to settle down for the winter of 1632 in the Habsburg lands, despite the impossibility of going anywhere else. Ferdinand had developed the grand idea that by moving this force into enemy territory, Wallenstein would reawaken the imperial passions of the citizenry, cause them to rise up, and provide fertile provisions for the army. This, of course, was ludicrous, since not only would Wallenstein's force melt away if he even suggested moving into enemy lands in winter, but citizens by this stage were beyond tired of the pillaging armies. An army was an army to them, and if a new one appeared outside their city, then it mostly did not matter who they were, unless they were bringing food and treats, they had to move on. The people had their own problems. Feeding armies had subjected them to untold levels of misery over the previous ten plus years, and now they wanted to get on with their lives. Again, this wasn't rocket science, but it seemed to be above the ability of Ferdinand to think like this, and he began to fall prey to Wallenstein's enemies, who remained in court. Then, Wallenstein made another mistake in Ferdinand's eyes, when he released Matthias Thurn. Thurn must have seemed like something of a relic to those who only knew the campaigning in Germany, and not where the whole conflict had originated. 
Thurn was a proud mover in the defenestration of Prague. He missed his bohemian homeland and continued to hover in the enemy camps of the Habsburgs until he could return to it. Importantly, Thurn had enthusiastically perpetrated the rumours circling Wallenstein at this time, mainly because he wholeheartedly believed them. This was mixed in with the news about the Saxon promise of the Bohemian Crown rumour for good measure, and it didn't take long for all of it to reach the ears of Vienna's finest. As Wallenstein's generals moved into Saxony, Arnhem pulled out of Silesia to counter the threat to his homeland, leaving Thurn's small force behind, which in turn enabled Wallenstein to move to Silesia, where he now dramatically outnumbered the Swedish force there. Instead of using his 25,000 strong force to combat Matthias Thurn's force of 8,000 though, Wallenstein invited the latter to treat with him. Thurn, only too eager to apparently cut his losses, surrendered his entire force without a fight in October 1633 at Steinau, and was granted his escape in return. And Sweden's collection of Silesian forts followed suit. Wallenstein had thus taken back Silesia, though all Ferdinand saw was the bohemian exile Thurn fleeing away from his own brand of justice. Wallenstein perhaps could have now journeyed up to Saxony and joined up with his generals, destroyed Arnhem's force in a combined effort and taken Saxony back for Ferdinand. Having just delivered Silesia back into Vienna's hands, it would have been something of a coup for the Generalissimo. But Wallenstein did not aim to destroy the Saxons or Saxony. He still hoped to detach Saxony from Sweden and make it the Habsburg ally it once was, while he also worried that moving to Saxony would force Axe Ox to respond, and create a risky pitched battle Wallenstein could not have been sure of winning. He moved within 20 miles of the border, so as to apply pressure on Saxony, and from this strong position on the 20th of October, he yet again turned to the pen. He proposed a grand alliance between Saxony and Brandenburg, a re-establishment of the old religious order in the empire, and joint operations against the Swedish threat. The refusals to these proposals came through by the 19th of November 1633. Chief among their reasons for refusing were that Sweden still appeared as the stronger party, and that the Edict of Restitution still scared the Lutheran John George and Calvinist George William from committing their states to siding with Wallenstein and the Emperor. Wallenstein was in this case asking too much of the Protestant electors, who were all the while being watched by the Swedes and Axe Ox. They had to rely purely on his own word for the settlement, and could not rely on Ferdinand for the kind of religious assurances they so badly desired. Joff Mortimer wraps up the dealings made by Wallenstein and explains why one of the last attempts to secure a peace in 1633 failed. Quote, Naive, but at least consistent, Wallenstein's objective throughout 1633 was the same as it had been since his first contacts with Arnhem in 1631 to induce Saxony not merely to break away with the Swedes, but to resume allegiance to the Emperor. John George, Arnhem and Wallenstein all shared a deep dislike of the foreign intervention in the affairs of the Empire, and to Wallenstein a return to their formal loyalty by Saxony and Brandenburg automatically implied a switch to active hostilities against Sweden or any other invaders. The electors and Arnhem, on the other hand, were seeking to find refuge in a face-saving neutrality, so that, joined by Wallenstein to form a German third party, they could negotiate peace terms with both the Emperor and Sweden from a position of strength. The two sides misunderstood these essential aspects of each other's intentions, 
and hence both felt deceived when Wallenstein's eventual forcing of the issue brought out into the open that the electors were not prepared to join a military united front against the Swedes, while the Generalissimo had no intention of being detached from the Emperor. End quote. Because these agreements were so stop-start in their nature, and because of the limited conflict that occurred in between the truces that resulted from them, Wallenstein was frequently criticised by Vienna for not pursuing a more proactive military policy. Additionally, the longer the talks went on, the less chances Wallenstein had to improve the imperial position by the end of 1633. Without the increase in Habsburg happiness in the field, Wallenstein could see his fortunes in Vienna plummet again. In Wallenstein's camp, the Generalissimo was facing increasingly troubling reports from Vienna. After having failed to remove the Swedes, after pardoning Thurn, and after the emergence of damaging rumours that we encountered earlier, Wallenstein already had given Ferdinand's court plenty of ammo. However, just as he was receiving the refusals of his peace agreements from the Protestant electors in mid-November 1633, Wallenstein was also trying to assess which way the military wind was blowing. Unfortunately for his career, and his life, he judged incorrectly. Bernard of Weimar, one of the new key generals on the scene under Swedish employ, had taken the opportunity to attack the gap in imperial lines left by Wallenstein as the latter moved up to pressure Saxony, and as one of his colleagues moved to the Rhine. When Axox ordered Bernard forward, Wallenstein was forced into a position no man wants to be in, that of multitasking. Trying to coordinate peace proposals with Saxony and also keeping a watchful eye on Bernard, Wallenstein had to read countless letters from Max of Bavaria and Ferdinand, pleading for Wallenstein's return so he could defend Bavaria. Bernard reached the Bavarian city of Regensburg on the 4th of November, and from there he could have moved southeast into Austria or northeast into Prague. Either way, Wallenstein believed he had some time to catch up with him. Regensburg would at least be safe. Since nobody wants to besiege a city amidst the onset of winter in enemy lands, so I'll just hop on my litter and carry down on the Danube at a leisurely pace. What's that? Regensburg surrendered after 10 days because the mostly Protestant citizens sympathised with the Swedes, and I didn't even get there on time? Well, that does not bode well for my future prospects. The loss of Regensburg, instead of being viewed as a mistake, was upheld as the last straw and vindication of the view held by Wallenstein's enemies that he was seeking retribution for his previous treatment. Maximilian of Bavaria, feeling the effects of Regensburg fall personally, because of its pride of place in his lands, of course, parroted the bad press surrounding Wallenstein at this time, insisting that abandoning his beloved Regensburg had been a deliberate act of treachery by the Bohemian, who once again had become too big for his boots, and once again dreamt of betraying the Emperor. When Wallenstein made an attempt to harry Bernard of Weimar in Regensburg in early December, only to be forced to turn back, his enemies exploded with rage. Only his loyal generals, Gallus and Piccolomini, appeared to understand his actions. Forgetting the fact that it was made under impossible weather conditions, that Bernard had all the advantages that Wallenstein had left the majority of his forces at Pilsen in case Arnhem's Saxon force attacked, or the circumstances of the previous year's Battle of Lutzen under similar circumstances, Joff Mortimer analyses the storm of anger that flowed from these moves. Quote, Maximilian was furious, the Emperor was furious, even Eggenberg, long one of Wallenstein's principal supporters, was furious. The credit gained from the success at Steinau in Silesia vanished as quickly as it had come, 
destroyed first by Wallenstein's misjudgment over Regensburg, and then by him moving against Bernard, but dashing the hopes this rose at court by withdrawing without firing a shot. The prospect of his removal from command was once more the talk of Vienna. Wallenstein himself, Piccolomini wrote to Gallus on the 2nd of December, would like to conclude a peace in any way possible, because he has fallen under such suspicions at the court that he wonders if there may be some action from there. The negotiations are more than ever on his mind, and remembering them makes him severely depressed. End quote. Wallenstein was on borrowed time, and now, pushed into a corner, he made the biggest mistake of all. Summoning his generals around him on January 11th, 1634, he sought to get from them assurances that they agreed to support his line of seeking peace with Vienna's enemies, and reiterated previous grievances that the Habsburg court had never seemed to solve. Money never came for the army, provisions arrived late or not at all, orders, such as they were, came coded with a level of authority yet never grasped the reality of the situation. An example Wallenstein gave of this were the orders to escort the infant Ferdinand, the brother of the Spanish king, Philip IV, into the Spanish Netherlands. It didn't matter that the journey was over 500 miles, that the Spanish road was blocked, or that the enemy occupied every point along the way. Nor did the Spanish regents realise that Wallenstein, even if he had wanted to please the Spaniards, had neither the resources nor the time to spare to see to such an errand. After he had wowed the Spanish with his logic, they sent a troubled message to Ferdinand, telling him that his Generalissimo was blocking their proposals to install the new governor of the Spanish Netherlands. Ferdinand, of course, did not give Wallenstein the benefit of the doubt. Instead, he added the incident to the list of others that had been piling up and stood against Wallenstein. So Wallenstein had his generals and officers assemble in the one place. Many of those that arrived were reliant personally on Wallenstein to see their debts paid and their expectations met, and many were still only a part of the army by 1634 because of the sheer sense of loyalty they felt they owed to their commander. It was not the thoughts of the emperor that kept them in the field, I assure you, but the realisation that in the past Wallenstein had so provided for them that kept his men loyal. So Wallenstein sought to assert this, and in a banquet held at the Pilsen City Hall, which soon turned into a sordid drunken affair, a text was passed around in which the men assigned their names, promising their loyalty to Wallenstein, and signifying that they placed their trust in him to deliver and him alone, and that they would not abandon him in his time of need. Much has been made of the event in that Pilsen Hall. Pretty much every single source I've come across makes more of it than it was. Essentially, it was neither a declaration of Wallenstein's desire to move against Vienna, nor was it a test of his own to see if such a move would be tolerated by his men. We probably would scarcely know about it, had his enemies not attempted a post-mortem character assassination by resurrecting every piece of potential propaganda they could find. Jeff Mortimer reasons the text of whatever it was. Quote, Stripped of all the grand phrases, this oath was essentially a symbolic gesture a warning shot to Vienna rather than an actual threat, and it was neither kept secret nor formally transmitted to court. As such, it had little practical significance, but it did allow Wallenstein's enemies to resurrect and exploit the old fear, dating back to 1630 that he would not go quietly if dismissed, but would turn the army against the emperor and the court. End quote. I can't help but feel sorry for the guy, 
even though he crushed the Habsburg enemies and made most of Ferdinand's excesses possible, he was acting for his master, whom he believed was in the right. I respect that, and I also think it blindingly unfair that history has blackened his name and continues to believe and uphold the ridiculous lies falsified by his enemies. Just remember, if you spread the lies, you're making Maximilian of Bavaria a very happy man. And really, who wants to do that? Wallenstein was unfortunate because in the world of a slow postage service, rumours could be believed all too easily when nobody was around to quell them. And certainly rumours abounded that Wallenstein planned an attack on the House of Austria in early 1634, just at the moment when word of the Pilsen Oath came in that seemed to confirm it. Additionally, though it had been his right as plenipotentiary for Ferdinand, news also filtered in about his agreements with Richelieu and Axe Ox, which painted a picture of a man who had placed his eggs in the enemy's baskets, and was now ready to eliminate his master, following the all-important oath he exacted from his men, of course. Once again, Vienna proved so willing to believe the lies, such was the time they spent obsessing over an oath which had been the design of one of Wallenstein's subordinates in the first place, and had been concocted only to reaffirm the soldiers' loyalty and prevent a mutiny through the lack of pay that Vienna was meant to supply. Convenience and suspicion proved to be a happy marriage for Maximilian of Bavaria, though, who, despite everything, was still sore at Wallenstein and wished him ousted. Ferdinand again gave in to the demands of those around him, who presented Wallenstein's previous difficulties as disobedience, his problems as protests, and his tone as treacherous. The order was given from Ferdinand to confiscate Wallenstein's duchies, the de facto death sentence, or at least signal that you've eternally lost favour with the Emperor. Wallenstein, having received word of this protocol of Ferdinand's by the 19th of February 1634, knew that his time as Generalissimo was over, and perhaps his life on earth, desperately painful as it now was, would soon be over too. Joff Mortimer delivers a damning verdict on Ferdinand's conduct regarding his faithful servant. Quote, the Emperor gave orders for the immediate dispatch of troops to seize his and his brother-in-law's possessions. Evidently, he was not expecting them to be brought to trial. It was Ferdinand's favourite financial device, to pay his debts by sequestering the assets of anyone who could conveniently be classified as a rebel. The veil of legality covering the near-naked appropriation was thin in Bohemia, thinner still in the Palatinate and Mecklenburg, and was now reduced to a three-man tribunal, sitting in secret, hearing no evidence and publishing no judgments, on the basis of which the Emperor issued what amounted to a warrant of execution. Scarcely surprising that no attention had been paid to Wallenstein's offer to resign and go into honourable retirement for what little time was left to him. End quote. On the 24th of February 1634, Wallenstein, his brother-in-law Turka, and Turka's sister's husband, Kinski, just so you know who everyone was, these two mostly hovered around Wallenstein for the latter part of his life, especially Turka, were killed while they inhabited the town of Eger, by a multinational trio sent to assassinate him by Ferdinand himself. Eger was notable for being one of the places Wallenstein had marched against Denmark from almost a decade before. This time, Wallenstein had in fact planned to escape to the Swedes, though the Swedes did not believe him and had refused to accept the offer of his rep as early as the 22nd of February, though Wallenstein could not have known. 
Albrecht Wenzel Eusebius von Wallenstein, after having given the best years of his life to Ferdinand, after sacrificing for Ferdinand his health and wealth, after having granted Ferdinand the kind of stunning victories he could only have dreamt of, after placing the Habsburgs on the pinnacle of its success, only to be fired, and then to prove again the only man capable of saving the cause when the tide turned against them, was dead after being ran through with a pike. Arnhem, the Saxon commander, sometimes enemy of Wallenstein, sometimes friend, depending on the circumstances, was appalled at the news of Wallenstein's murder, despite the fact that they were technically on opposite sides. Though as a Saxon, he would soon come to join the Emperor's side by default. The Great Habsburg victory later in the year was not enjoyed by him personally, and he bitterly resigned in protest thereafter. It was perhaps John George of Saxony, that conflicted character who had encountered Wallenstein on so many occasions before, who captured the event best. Remarking to Arnhem, he sighed, Starting in blood, flourishing in blood, it will end in blood. Wallenstein was perhaps the most successful character of the Thirty Years' War. Ferdinand owed every ounce of his success, in fact his very existence, to that once bohemian exile. Yet Ferdinand had elected to throw him under the bus rather than fight for his loyal servant, and then kill him when it proved convenient. None of the mercy Wallenstein had shown for his enemies, none of the skill in defusing the situation was present in Ferdinand's mind. The Viennese atmosphere of warped realities and acidic paranoia had eaten away at Ferdinand's sensibilities and had persuaded him that Wallenstein had to go. Permanently. Once he had owed Wallenstein everything, but Ferdinand granted through death nothing to Wallenstein, save for the release from the severe pain he had endured while he had served his emperor. As Wallenstein's assassins fought over the spoils, and anyone who had anything remotely to do with the assassination also complained loudly for more spoils, Ferdinand saw to it that Wallenstein's lands were legally seized, which meant that, as Jaff Mortimer put it, quote, a coach and horses had to be driven through any concept of legality. End quote. The clause Wallenstein had got signed by Ferdinand stipulated that, as Duke of his lands, he was liable to be executed in serious circumstances, but that his lands could not be taken from his family. Wallenstein, of course, had been thinking about succession and inheritance, yet Ferdinand would not let his generalist moat have even this courtesy, and the lands he seized guaranteed that Wallenstein's son and wife could get nothing from the duchies which Wallenstein's life's work to the Habsburgs had won him. As the months passed, Ferdinand no doubt worried that the fact that no trial had been present would come back to bite him. But the swirling of propaganda in the face of questions by Kinsky's widow, one of those executed alongside Wallenstein on the 24th of February, attempted to deal with the controversy. These executions were justified, Ferdinand's agents reasoned to the widow, on the basis that, though killing someone without trial may appear more authoritarian than just, the guilt of the criminals fitted the sentence, and their guilt has been proven by past actions. It reads much like something from Alice in Wonderland, on the Queen of Hearts' infamous sentence first, verdict afterwards, springs to mind. Ferdinand likely hoped that the whole affair would blow over, and anyway, he had far bigger fish to fry at this stage. Wallenstein's corpse was still warm when Ferdinand had already decided on his replacement. Paid for with the newly confiscated lands of Wallenstein's duchies, this imperial army was to strike up at the Heilbronn League and Swedish forces in a final desperate effort to free the empire from its peril. It was to be commanded by his son, the King of Hungary and Bohemia,
Ferdinand III. The association of the German Protestant princes with Sweden had always been an uneasy alliance. George William of Brandenburg had his qualms about Pomerania, which made him first a flaky, then non-committal, and then hostile polity towards Sweden. John George of Saxony continued to feel powerless as his alliance with Sweden set him directly against the Emperor, a road he had never wished to take. Constitutionally as well, John George felt as though he was violating the terms of his electoral status by siding with the invader. However, what both could at least claim was that, as master of northern Germany, Sweden had acquired a position where the two of them had no choice. It was either join Sweden or face destruction. The Edict of Restitution was a stumbling block, but both felt that, by 1634, the Emperor could be persuaded that it was the Edict that prevented peace in the HRE. The two electors did not ally themselves with the Heilbronn League, sending a clear message to Axel Oxenstierna in particular. What was required was a Habsburg victory to open the way for talks and reconciliation between the two sides. It was under this goal that Ferdinand of Austria marched along the Danube to meet up with his cousin, the Cardinal Infant Ferdinand, the same Cardinal Infant Ferdinand that Wallenstein had been meant to escort to the Spanish Netherlands in the months before. For the sake of clarity, the Infant portion of Ferdinand's title merely designated him as the brother of the King of Spain. Any relative of the Spanish royalty who did not plan on inheriting the Spanish throne was given the moniker Infant. Though still granted a high level of respect, Infants were usually placed in positions of governance or in important places where the king could rely on them as their loyal representative and sibling. The cardinal aspect of his name was in place because he was a cardinal, so not as interesting, but because he held it he was privy to the income such a position acquired. For the sake of convenience, Ferdinand of Austria, who would become Ferdinand III once his father finally got approval for his election as successor in the autumn of 1636, will be referred to as Ferdinand III from now on, while his dad will simply be called Ferdinand, and the Cardinal Infant Ferdinand will be called Infant. Hopefully, this should make things a little easier with all the Ferdinands swimming around. Bernard of Weimar was the general who was in charge of the army once commanded by Gustavus Adolphus, and as such it was his responsibility to make waves as his predecessor did. Bernard will be an important figure over the next few years, as he'll be pretty much the only general operating in southern Germany. While Arnhem, commander of the Saxons, marched towards Bohemia with a view to besieging Prague in spring 1634, Bernard attempted to prevent the emotional meeting between the two Ferdinands, as the Infant advanced up the Valtelline and through the Tyrol region of Italy, while Ferdinand III moved across the Danube. Ferdinand III possessed what was once Wallenstein's army, while the Infant commanded a smaller force of about 10,000 almost solely Spanish forces. David Milland, in his book Europe at War 1600-1650, outlines how the two enemies eventually came to do battle in September. Quote, in Germany, the Spanish Ferdinand marched through the Valtelline into the Tyrol, while his cousin, the Austrian Ferdinand, advanced up the Danube to meet him. Bernard of Weimar therefore attempted to disrupt their purposes by seeking to lure the Austrians into following him into Bohemia, where Arnhem had successfully advanced from Saxony to the gates of Prague. Though Bohemia was in great peril, Ferdinand of Austria, by luck or good judgment, left it to its fate. He took Regensburg and pressed on up the Danube. Bernard, whose lines of communication lay up the Danube, therefore had no option 
but to turn around and follow in his stead. Arnhem, then, without support, failed to take Prague and withdrew. End quote. By the time Bernard's force caught up with the two Ferdinands on the 5th of September, 1634, they were besieging Nordlingen, a small town in Bavaria and one of the first towns in Bavaria to adopt Protestantism. Bernard's men, tired and demoralised after pursuing a wild goose chase for the past few months, did not appear altogether ready for battle. Upon arriving, though, Bernard reckoned that if he failed to rescue the garrison there, then other nearby towns may surrender. Additionally, Bernard was also under pressure from reps of the Heilbronn League, who similarly wanted to see a result for 1634 that they could persuade their members to stand by. The two Ferdinands had been hesitant to fight at first too. It was known that this was the army once commanded by Gustavus. That alone was a troubling fact. Additionally, neither of the two Ferdinands had seen much battle, while Bernard and even his subordinate Gustav Horn had seen years of fighting under Gustavus Adolphus and alongside him. In short, neither side was especially disposed to take the fight to the other. In this case, though, fighting the Habsburgs was a mistake. The Spanish army under the Infant consisted of highly trained professional units, while they also had three days to prepare and loot the surrounding countryside. When combined with Ferdinand III's army, the Habsburgs numbered 33,000, compared to the 25,000 men under Bernard's command. Thus, while both sides debated actually fighting at all, they eventually elected to do so because they reasoned that, after seeing no decisive battle take place in Germany since arguably Lutzen two years before, something had to give. This time, when the two numerically varied armies lined up, it was clear something was very different to before. Not only had Bernard been incorrect, and the reinforcements under the Infant been way more than he had anticipated, but he had also taken it for granted that his side would be outnumbered. Expecting a repeat of Breitenfeld, perhaps, Bernard had treated this army no differently than the previous ones he'd encountered. But the presence of the Spanish made all the difference. Granting the army a wealth of confidence, this time when these Spanish soldiers formed the Turkio formation, they did not break. The old pike and musket square formations, so horrendously inadequate at Breitenfeld, proved their staying power here when used in experienced hands. Having never faced the Swedes before, the Spanish on this battlefield simply did what they'd been trained to do so well, and the Swedish Heilbronn army, after launching charge after charge against the immovable Turkios, were broken after all forces moved at once against the left flank. It was a masterful counter-attack, and it broke the entire army's line, who soon became trapped in a rout once the men got tangled and delayed in their own baggage train. Gustav Horn was captured, and his army fled back to safety with Bernard at its head. Just like that, the fortunes of the Habsburgs had dramatically shifted yet again. The results of the loss were almost immediate. Axel Oxenstierna now bore witness to deafening calls to vacate the war and enable Swedish recovery from Sweden's parliament while Sweden's German allies, apparently just waiting for the excuse, abandoned their former overlord in droves. It was from this position of weakness that Ferdinand II could propose talks. All the princes were invited, and a truce was negotiated between the electors of Saxony and Brandenburg just ten weeks after Nordlingen. The Spanish and Austrian Ferdinands had never been closer, and their elders recognised the significance of the event by pledging to destroy the other Habsburg enemy together. Finally, 
in a major diplomatic coup for Spain, and perhaps in reward for its carrying the day at Nordlingen. The Compact of Ebersdorf was signed in October 1634. This pledged, at last, the Holy Roman Emperor and his resources to aid the Spanish in every sense against the Dutch Republic, and finally eliminate them as a threat to the Habsburg family once and for all. This brought the Dutch for the first time into the wider Thirty Years' War, rather than remaining a sideshow in their war with Spain. The so-called preliminaries at Perna, taking place in the city of Perna, collected the key goals and promises of the German princes together, as Ferdinand II weighed up what he was willing to give. The Peace of Prague that would result from arrangements in Prague the following spring, 1635, dramatically changed the face of the Thirty Years' War. In summary, though we'll look at it in more detail next time, it promised to postpone the Edict of Restitution for 40 years, to wind the clock back to 1627 in terms of who owned what land, and in doing this, Ferdinand achieved his masterstroke against the Swedes and other invaders. The Holy Roman Empire, now able to call upon the support of Saxony, Brandenburg and other minor Protestant princes, looked for the first time like a German national polity, and this German national polity, crucially, was now able to send a multi-denominational army towards the north, with the sole aim of kicking the Swedes out of their remaining bridgeheads. Axox was in a crisis. Not only had Gustavus's victories melted away following one loss, but the virtual entirety of Germany was now set against him. To the east, Poland threatened renewed action following the expiring of the truce between them in mid-1635 while the plans for Russia to hold down Polish attention had gone up in smoke, as had alternative plans for Turkish aid. The Dutch, now facing the prospect of an imperial Spanish army, also had much to fear. In this situation, France's Cardinal Richelieu realised just how much the tables had turned. After years of war by proxy, of making mercenaries out of the Habsburg's enemies, and by blocking Habsburg progress in Italy and elsewhere, the time had come to fully commit to the struggle. On the 28th of March 1635, the Elector of Trier was captured and carried off to Vienna as a prisoner. As per the terms of their arrangement, the electors of Trier and Cologne had asked and received French protection in 1632. Richelieu now had his pretext. On the 19th of May 1635, a state rep was sent to Brussels, to announce that hostilities had commenced between France and Spain. In doing so, Richelieu made the historic decision to finally commit his state to the morass that had consumed Europe for the past 17 years. It was a decision that France's allies, Sweden and the Netherlands, were dying to see realised, and it was a decision that would utterly change the face of the Thirty Years' War, and beyond that, Europe itself. And we'll end on that incredible note, folks. As you can see, this episode has dragged on far too long to really examine what I just covered, so don't worry. Next time we'll look at how the war came to involve the French, how France is nearly annihilated, how the Swedes are nearly annihilated, but how both hold on, and how Ferdinand manages to co-opt the aid of his fellow Germans, as well as hopefully finish with the 1630s, but probably not. My name is Zach, and you've been listening to the When Diplomacy Fails special on the Thirty Years' War. Episode 25.7, 1632 to 1635. Thanks.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.